I'm Carl Ulrich, Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at the Wharton School, and this is Launchpad, where I talk to successful entrepreneurs about the secrets to launching and growing their startups. I'm very happy to welcome to my show my next guest, Daniel Golden, the founder of New Edge. Daniel, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. My pleasure. You know, I prepared for this show, and I just couldn't believe how many different threads there were of super interesting stuff. So I, I, I can't wait to get into it. But I want to start by first pointing our listeners to your website. So it's it's New Edge, and I'm going to have to spell that because it's a clever spelling of new. So it's K-N-U-E-D-G-E, New Edge, K-N-U-Edge.com. Daniel, give us the elevator pitch for New Edge. We want to do nothing less than change how people partner with machines. We want anyone to have a capacity to have a powerful artificial intelligence experience with anyone, anywhere, and on any device. We want it to be frictionless. We want it to be easy to use. And most of all, we want to empower individuals and corporations. And we hope to be ubiquitous. Wow. Well, that's that's no small ambition. And lest our listeners have just turned off the radio because of how how ambitious that is, I want to detour just a second here and have you tell us a little bit about your background. So uh, the first thing, the first thread that is incredibly unusual about this company is that you founded it when you were around 65. I mean, I've gotten that year uh, correct. But that was 10 years ago. So, so you are now doing something that most people would be would be golfing uh, at, uh, at at this point in their careers. So, tell us a little bit about your background and 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 why I think this is so credible. I want our listeners to hear why this is so credible. Sure, I, yeah. I I've had a lifetime. I'm a very fortunate person. I have a lifetime of innovation. I've I've been uh, building things, inventing things since I'm seven. When my father took me to the Museum of Natural History on the west side, uh, west side of Central Park, and I was fascinated. Uh, first job, I started working at NASA, where while we were doing the Apollo program, I was working uh, to build uh, ion engines and plasma engines powered by a nuclear power source to take uh, astronauts to Mars. Uh, so you're used to thinking in galactic terms. Yeah, and uh, then I ended up uh, developing uh, proof that direct broadcast TV works, and we could go from giant dishes that used to be outside businesses and bars and uh, illuminate just an 18-inch dish, which we now have ubiquitous around the world. I did that experiment in 1976. I've developed... Uh, blue-green lasers to communicate under the ocean. I've uh, had the opportunity, uh, after I worked in national security for a giant aerospace firm, I, I ran one of the larger space activities in the world. I got a call from the President of the United States, and he wanted to know if I would be willing to run NASA. <laughs> I did that for 10 years under three presidents. And... Okay, hold it. I want our listeners to make sure they got that. Dan ran 
NASA. Okay, so that's why I said I wanted to get that introduction out of the way before we <laughs> listen. Okay. Uh, and then there's more. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, did, I, I, I saw a need that we were reaching the really the physical limits of what we could do with Moore's Law and Silicon. This happened while I was in the government, and I, I started to encourage people to take a deeper dive into neuroscience, and I can get to that in a minute, mm -hmm. because it is the ultimate answer for change in architecture. I couldn't get attention of anyone. And finally, uh, after launching the shuttle 62 times and that's the, the space That's the, the space, space shovel, folks. Yeah, go ahead. And uh, putting a contact lens on the Hubble telescope and doing the conceptual design of the Webb Space Telescope, which is going to be launched next year. And hopefully, if uh, we're effective, we may be able to see the first stars that ignited after the Big Bang, I don't know, 14 billion years ago. Uh, I decided the next challenge in my life was to help see if we could make artificial intelligence open and available to individuals, small companies, big companies, the world, to help make our planet a better place. And here I was at age 61. I had finished my third career, <laughs> and I decided uh, I knew about as much as I needed to know about computer science and physics, or technology, materials, but I didn't know neuroscience, and I wasn't ready to go back to graduate school and go get a PhD in neuroscience. So I searched the country, and I found a fellow named Gerald Edelman who won the Nobel Prize in uh, physiology and medicine, and he won the Nobel Prize because he proved that the immune system wasn't instruction-based, and it was more of an adaptive system. Hmm. And from that, he uh, developed uh, an approach for brain-based devices, so I approached him and I said, how'd you like to teach me neuroscience? I'll come work for your lab. And he said, Dan, I, I have a problem. I have to raise some money. So my tuition was <laughs> to raise, help uh, raise money for the Neurosciences Institute in uh, San Diego. And in return, I spent three years with him uh, learning about neuroscience. And we worked as a team with five brilliant young people and we built a robot that could play soccer, and uh, it had a cerebellum, which gives it balance. It had uh, a hippocampus, which gave it uh, positioning. It had other functions, sight, the hearing, and uh, we used the Segway, put the person on a Segway with a kicker and a ball grabber, put a robot on the Segway. We would talk to the robot, send it downfield, we played Carnegie Mellon, we won, and I went out and raised money from my company saying I learned my lessons in 2005. So, Dan, take us back to that moment where you had an inkling that, that the future was in more of a neural model of computing. Did you embark on that three-year journey knowing where you were going or merely with a hunch that this was something that at worst was going to be interesting? And oh, best. no, I never do anything without a vision. Okay, so what was the vision? The vision was to build a machine that had the capacity 
to allow people to train machines mm -hmm. uh, for uh, a very simple method and to train them very fast and to have it uh, available to anyone anywhere. I have a basic principle that I've operated with in my life, and that is whenever I embark on a new uh, journey, I have a vision of where I want to end up, and then I work backwards to figure out how to get there. Mm -hmm. So I had the vision, and I went back to school, if you will, to learn about it. And, and, and Michelangelo... Uh, he had he said something that struck me many many years ago i saw the angel in the marble and i carved until i set it free that has had a huge impact on me i i, I felt he did the things the same way he saw that angel and then once he saw the angel, he could figure out how to carve it so it would come out to be some beautiful object. And in a similar way, I had a vision. I knew what I wanted to do, but I didn't have the tools to get it done, so I needed to go back to school and learn. Mm -hmm. All right. So the, the second element to your career and to your approach to this business, business that is highly unconventional is that you might be the longest startup in stealth mode that I've ever heard of, meaning you worked on this for 10 years, by my understanding, before selling your first product. Um, and But I'm guessing that there's a trade-off here because I suspect your first product is actually not the angel. There's still something to come, but you had to find an intermediate milestone. So how do you think about that basic strategic question. You've got a vision of what that Michelangelo's angel is going to be, but as a practical matter, as a commercial enterprise, you have to at some point start selling a product. So how'd you, how'd you work back from there? And well, I, you can't put a building up unless you have the bricks to yeah. build the building. I needed to get the bricks. And here is the issue. There is an enormous, just an enormous stress to do revolutionary new products. I wanted to have a revolutionary architecture for silicon and not keep working on the standard von Neumann architecture, uh, not do it the way other people have done. And, and in, in, in fact, when I first started advertising for people, I went to monster.com and I said, if you're an incrementalist looking to make improvements on existing technology, looking for 10, 20, 30 percent improvement, a fate of failure, you need not apply. But if you're not afraid of failure, shooting for orders of magnitude, come on and join us. Mm -hmm. We have become a society that's incremental. We don't do the crazy, wild, and bold things because of fear of failure and being driven that you have to have results in a year or two or else you go out of business. I'm a little strange. I'm a little crazy. And I even remembered uh, when I had accepted the job as NASA administrator, I went through my confirmation process, and at the time, the space station was... Uh, 
They spent all the money that Congress appropriated for it in 84 when Ronald Reagan said we ought to build it, and they got the 92, 8 billion, eight years, nothing. The, the parts were in bushel baskets. There wasn't one piece of hardware. The Hubble telescope was blind. The Galileo spacecraft was deaf. The shuttle was grounded. And <laughs> it was quite uh, stressful. And I remember landing at Dulles Airport when I, after I was confirmed and sworn in, I went home to California to get some clothes and things. And it was on a Sunday night, and I was walking through Dulles Airport, having just arrived as the newly minted NASA administrator, and someone stopped me and said, are you Dan Golden? Ha. And I said, yes. He said, I want to offer you my condolences. This is a horrible job. <laughs> and I said to him, you don't get it. What an opportunity this is to help the people, the wonderful people at NASA and in the, in the, in the uh, space industry, we have unbelievable opportunity. I see the vision. So, yeah, was it hard? Holy smokes, we went through multiple funding rounds, and uh, we came within a few weeks of running out of business. In one case, it was a few days. But I was determined that we would develop a revolutionary new architecture, fundamentally saying that we were going to build a heterogeneous sparse matrix system that had the capacity, not for today's type of artificial intelligence, but for tomorrow's, and uh, we continue the battle. It's not over yet. We haven't declared success. We wake up scared every morning, but we know where we're going. Dan, so I want to I get us back to the bricks. So... That, that's an awesome vision, and you've set out to effectively reinvent the computing or create a new computing architecture mm-hmm. to displace the, as you call it, the von Neumann architecture, which for those who don't know is essentially uh, the conventional computing, computing model that involves instructions and data uh, operating on those, on the instructions operating on, on data. Um, the, but, but you have now built a brick. And I want you to tell us what the brick does. And, you know, very specifically, the thing I can buy today to give us an example of what it can do. It can operate at blazing speeds, mm-hmm. at very low power, and it has a capacity for hell, of being able to train machines faster, operate machines faster. It has a, it, it, it's called a scatter-gather capability, and it could do, un- operate at unprecedented speeds for random access memory. Mm-hmm. And uh, it has all the qualities that I wanted it to have. It, it was our first prototype chip, and we're building, we took the chips and we put them on boards, we took the boards and put them in chassis, and now we're taking the chassis and putting them into racks. And uh, this summer we expect to have a beta uh, portal for uh, preliminary uh, testing, and we're going to start taking racks and putting them together and building a giant data center over the next few years. 
And while we're doing that, we have invented our second generation, third generation chips, and we're just moving along. All right, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to push you a little bit on the details here just to see if we can clarify for our listeners. So, so at, at, at fundamentally, this is a piece of hardware, a piece of computing hardware. And can you give us an example, and, and just for our listeners who, I would say state-of-the-art today for computers that do the kinds of things that you aspire to do is people are using what are essentially gaming chips uh, so-called GPUs, gaming chips, which are super fast, super cheap. But you have built a completely new approach to computing that is, uh, by your estimate, blazingly fast as relative relevant to the existing uh, chips. Did I get that yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, look, let me uh, explain it this way. The GPU is designed to do graphic processing, and it is brilliant. <laughs> it really is brilliant in how fast it works. And then by chance, uh, there are a lot of individuals working with things called deep knowledge networks, convolutional neural networks, and it seems to work very well for that. That is the uh, machine learning mm -hmm. technique du jour. And uh, our chip is highly, it, it, we have a capacity of taking our chips, and there are multiple cores on each chip, and we could access cores on other chips real fast, and we have an ability to scale. So with our ability to scale, we could be highly competitive with the existing technology, if you will, on the football field of existing algorithms. But we intend to open up a whole new field for machine intelligence by going from, if you will, uh, homogeneous systems to heterogeneous systems. That is, each of my each of the cores could simultaneously simultaneously be running different equations, uh, different analysis, and it opens up the world to what I'll call homogeneous sparse matrix. Uh, uh, operations, and uh, we see a incredible future. So we're competitive in the existing field, and we're just going to move into a whole new domain. All right. The thanks so much for that clarification and explanation. It's super interesting. the The third thing that I noticed about your approach that is highly unconventional is that you set out on a ten year path before to, before shipping your, your first product. And in, in one of the articles I read in preparation for the interview, you, you make the statement that you needed patient money, and that was one of the arguments for being in San Diego as opposed to Silicon Valley. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what kinds of people will invest in you know tens of millions, $100 million in a 10-year project like this. Um. <laughs> People who have been successful have a great deal of confidence in themselves, have really had experiences and that they've, they've been to the temple of success and they'd like to have it strike again. And it's and I, I will also tell you that uh, we did have revenues over that period. We did take on tasks for the U.S. government, 
where we felt we had something very specific to offer. Mm -hmm. And in in doing those jobs, we were able to validate that uh, we were highly competitive without having to broadcast to the world that we exist. So we we were very quiet, and uh, I... I feel that when one has something to say, you go say it. You don't say it before you've done it. Mm-hmm. So, uh, very, very, very smart people. The other issue was that I wanted people who had connections because we want to be a very powerful, well-known commercial company. So in addition to providing money, they were able to bring different types of uh, connections into companies and people. So it's been a real team effort with uh, our investors. I, I also wonder to what extent those investors, you, you mentioned they've been very successful before. And, you know, you look at someone like, like uh, Peter Thiel or Mark Zuckerberg, these people who've made, uh, Elon Musk, people who made billions of dollars doing, some, doing something. And in the case of both Thiel and, and Musk, they did it doing something pretty ordinary, actually, payment processing. But then once they made their first billion, they said, you know what? I want to go to Mars or I want to reinvent computing. And is, is, it, is, it, is it that if you've been that successful, your risk profile changes? No, I run scared whenever I take on any new task. I don't. <laughs> yeah, I, I just don't see how, when you set a very tough goal to say it's going to be easy, I don't believe you believe you're going to do it. Yeah, yeah. You're out there exposed. Yeah. And it's, you know, the brain doesn't learn from success. And those that go through life wearing a nice white suit that don't want to have dirt spots on that suit, uh, you know, symbolic of failure, they don't really learn. Mm-hmm. The way you learn is to fail. Yeah. That's how the brain re- rewires itself. So life is about not success, but experiencing failure. If you have too many successes and haven't had the trauma and emotion of failure, you don't learn. Mm-hmm. So no, I run scared. I've run scared my whole life. <laughs> All right, I love that. I love the contrarian view. It's awesome. You know. So I want to. I want to take us back to the brick you built to this to this first processor board and array, and uh, you know you have this amazing vision and this general purpose computing vision. On the other hand, you got to get started somewhere, and you got to get some initial users to be using this 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 device. And so, at least if I can believe what's currently on your website, the initial application that you're at least talking about and is available publicly is a is a speech processing application where you can take very noisy audio data and extract distinctive characteristics of the of the speaker. Um, how did you fix? How did you decide on that application? And how does a single application fit into the bigger vision? That was only a proof of concept. <laughs> okay. With the, the, don't be distracted by the stealth of the website. <laughs> but if, we, if you really think about it, we live in a world of unstructured data. Mm-hmm. And go back five and ten years and you think about computing, it was all about text and numbers. 
very structured. But we're generating data. I think every minute we're generating 88 gigabits of data every minute on this planet, and most of it is lying dead in legacy systems that are ripe for cybercrime. <laughs> so we are needing to do a lot of things, and if you think about it, a lot of uh, viruses and uh, cyber attacks, um, they're all unstructured data. They exist and you can't see it. A video is unstructured data. If you want to have a, a driverless automobile, you just can't have video. You have to know exactly what's in that video. You have to be able to have all these inputs and reduce it to things that you can make decisions on or structure. So I took a look at what would be a really good demonstration that we could go from unstructured data to structured data, and I said, wow, being able to take voice and extract the voice from a complex noise scene, not just with white noise, you know, right. you know, a wind blowing uh, uh, across a car and you open the window, but, uh, you know, structured noise like people talking, <laughs> musical instruments playing, uh, bangs and knocks, being able to take a noise scene where you can't even hear what someone's saying and being able to extract that voice and playing it back with crystal clarity and then knowing what's in it, that's going from unstructured to structured data. Yeah. Dan, we're... I'm going to have to leave it at there. That's a really clear explanation, but, but leave it at that. But we are, we're remarkably, we're out of time. So we're going to have to circle back in a few months and see what amazing things you've achieved next. But thanks so much for joining me today. Super interesting. I enjoyed the conversation. Thank you very much. All right. To keep up with New Edge, visit their website. I'm going to spell again, knuedge.com. And I predict you're going to hear a lot more about New Edge. I'm Carl Ulrich, Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at Wharton. Launchpad is produced by Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, on Sirius XM Channel 111. The show airs live on Wednesdays from 7 to 9 p.m. You can find more episodes of this podcast on SoundCloud or on iTunes.